morning, everyone. How are we all doing? Good. Uh, Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be on page 908 if you have the Pew Bible in front of you. And uh, if anything uh, strikes you as um, confusing or if you have a question about anything as we go through this, We'll do some Q&R at the end this morning. You can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and um, send in your questions there. Let me pray for us. Lord God, this is uh, just an interesting season of the year. It's, it's one of these, these markers on the calendar that we, uh, both in, in the church and in our broader culture, we, we put a lot of stock in. Uh, there's, there's a whole genre of movies connected to this season. There's, a, there's shopping and, and vacation days and celebration, and, and we talk about Advent and, and these things. and um, It just sets... It sets a flag in the ground in December for all of us. And for many of us, that means joy and excitement and um, warm, fuzzy feelings. And for others of us, just because of of who we are or maybe because of tragedy that has befallen us in December's in the past, God, this season is difficult. Um, this, This season just becomes annual reminder of hardship and pain. And God, as we continue to explore the coming of Jesus uh, the first time and, and then looking forward to his coming again, I just pray that wherever we are in that matrix today, that you would speak to us. If we're struggling through this season, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. If we are just rejoicing, overjoyed at how awesome it is that it's almost Christmas, I pray that your spirit would speak to us. I pray that we would grow in our trust and our hope and our confidence in who you are, that we would see the ways that that you are making yourself big and strong in our lives. Open your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the third week of Advent. Advent is four weeks leading up to Christmas, and it is a season historically in the church of somber expectation, of waiting in quiet, in peace, in stillness for the coming of the Lord. Um, It involves contemplation, For many, it involves fasting, preparing ourselves for the feast of Christmas and and the celebration of the coming of Jesus, our King. It's also a season of reflection on that coming of Christ. The fact that God has given himself to us, just this amazing ultimate gift of his own self. And it's an opportunity, not, not that we should only be thinking about this during Advent, but it is a special opportunity for us to be generous in our own lives. We've been practicing this together um, through a variety of different things. I want to thank everyone that 
signed up to Bell Ring yesterday. I had a good time. Um, I hope everyone did. And I want to just thank you for all of you that are bell ringing today, giving of your time. If you brought gift cards for the foster children or winter clothes for our refugee neighbors in Spokane, they can be dropped off on the stage at any point today. We're going to deliver those this week. And I just wanted to give you an update on the, the fund for the medical supplies for the pediatric surgeon in Burundi. Um, we've raised $1,600 so far. Uh, as a reminder, their, their need for the entire 2024 year is 5000 and we would like to cover that for them. So we'll be taking donations for that fund through the end of the year, if you should feel led to give in that way. And this, is, this is what we want to be about in the Advent season, and the scripture this morning kind of helps us to focus around some of these ideas of waiting, of the coming of Christ, of the expectation of things to come. In my home growing up, at Christmas, there were two schools of thought. My father's school of thought was, we should just let the kids open one present before Christmas. Maybe even a few days before Christmas, they could open one every day. And, and my sister and I thought that was a good idea. My mom, on the other hand, thought that that was pretty terrible. That was, that was not the way you do Christmas. Christmas is for Christmas morning, and we, we, we wait until that time. My dad usually won, and, uh, and, and we were grateful for that, to get to open some of our presents early, because the expectation of the Christmas holiday was often too much to handle. In my house, we have a different philosophy. We, uh, we just don't care about what our kids want. <laughs> and, and so we get up on Christmas morning and my wife goes, let's make coffee and I'll bake cinnamon rolls. Here, read the Christmas story. And, and my kids are going, please stop. I want to open the presents. I don't care about any of these things. But we don't care. We're building character in our children. <laughs> Christmas offers us all of these markers as we get closer to the day. We have Advent calendars with little doors in it, you know, and, and it, we, we are counting down the days until Christmas is here. And in our, in our scriptural text this morning, we get to this point prior to Christmas where Zechariah is witnessing one of those markers. And just like in our text last week when Mary breaks into song, of praise, Zechariah is going to do the same thing. For a little background, since we didn't go over this text, Zechariah is a priest in Israel, and an angel comes to him while he's serving and says, you and your wife, who are old and past the age for bearing children, are going to have a son, and he is going to be this herald, this precursor to the Messiah, the king, the one who is coming to redeem your people. And Zechariah is not sure about this. I don't know why, you know, an angel shows up and tells him something. He's like, I don't know, prove it. And because of that, uh, the angel strikes him mute. He's no longer able to speak for the duration of this pregnancy. And so when we picked up this morning in our text, Elizabeth, his wife, had given birth to a son. And they're circumcising the child on the eighth day. And, and this is the time where they officially give him his name, and Elizabeth knows that he's supposed to be called John. 
That's what the angel said. But there's some confusion because that's not a family name for them. And so Zechariah writes on a little chalkboard and, and, and says his name is John and, and suddenly his tongue is loosed. He can speak again. Everybody's amazed by this. And so Zechariah here is witnessing in the birth of his son, this thing that is kicking off the revolution that is at the kingdom of God. John and Jesus aren't going to begin their work for about 30 years. Zechariah probably won't live to see it. He's an old man even now. But something is being let out of the box today that can't be put back in. And Zechariah rejoices in God's salvation. All the people around him say in verse 66, what then will this child become? And Zechariah sings a song answering that question. And he sings about God's promise to save his people. And he, he sings about how God will save them from their enemies, but then also how God will save them from themselves. And so we're going to take a look at three things in the song of Zechariah this morning. We're going to take a look at God's promise to save, how God saves from, his en- from our enemies, and how God saves us from ourselves. So starting in verse 67, we read, Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. So Zechariah begins this song praising God for doing what he said he was going to do. He praises God for keeping his promises. Now, the people of Israel, they haven't heard anything from God for about 400 years. If you take a look at the the page between Malachi and Matthew in your Bible, there's 400 years between those pages. How long would it be for you to give up hope? How long would it be for you to go, you know, maybe, maybe we just misunderstood what he said. Maybe, maybe we did something to screw up the plan. Or maybe... Maybe he lied to us. Maybe we just can't trust him. Do you ever think things like this when it comes to God's promises? It takes me very little hardship before I begin to doubt the whole thing. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but, but things, go difficult, things are difficult and I start to go like, does, does God love me? Am I even a Christian? Is, this, is God even real? When I feel like God should move on my behalf and nothing happens, I start to feel these things. We sang about it this morning, but Psalm 13 says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? This is King David, this man who who has this really close, powerful relationship with God. And even he's going, God, I thought you were going to come through for me and nothing's happening. What is going on? And the thing is about a third of the Psalms are like this. This is called a Psalm of Lament. And if you read through the Psalms, you'll notice pretty quickly that a lot of them are asking God where he's at and what he's doing. Where are you, God? I'm suffering. But David's example here gives us insight into something that we can miss when we're feeling this way. Who is David talking to in Psalm 13? Any guesses? God. He's talking to God. 
He's anxious and he's angry and he's laying it in front of God. See, my temptation when I don't think God is delivering on his promises is to walk away, is to give up. Well, I I tried being a Christian, but that didn't work. So I guess I'll try something else. I spoke with someone a number of months ago who, who had been a part of our church community and we were in they were in our Everybody Everyday prayer book, like Brian announced. We, we have this little prayer book and anybody in the church who wants to be in a part of it can submit some prayer requests and we have a prayer team that prays for everyone in the book every day, all the time. And this person was in the prayer book and it was time to update the prayer requests. And I said, hey, can we update your prayer requests? And they said, no thanks, prayer doesn't work for me. And they've slowly kind of disappeared from our life as a community. And I don't know what's going on with them. But I get that. I feel that way sometimes. Like, yeah, I don't know. Does any of it matter? It's been so long. Over 400 years, any normal person wouldn't blame the people of Israel for thinking that God had failed them. Everything was lost. There was no hope but God was working. God always has a reason for what he's doing. And it probably has to do, unfortunately, with my own character. In Psalm 105, the psalmist talks about the story of Joseph in Genesis. It says, he called down famine against the land and destroyed the entire food supply. He had sent a man ahead of him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with shackles. His neck was put in an iron collar until the time of his prediction came true. The word of the Lord tested him. See, Joseph was told early on that he was going to rule over his family, that he was going to be lifted up in this high position, and then he's sold into slavery, and then he's thrown into prison for years. And the psalmist says, God was doing that on purpose because he was doing something inside Joseph's heart. All of these people are waiting, suffering under Roman occupation, wondering if God is ever going to show up in their lives. But God is preparing them for something through the waiting. There's this scene in the Lord of the Rings where the, the good guys are at this place called Helm's Deep. This big battle's going on and all of the armies of the enemy have come to destroy them. And it's going badly. But there's this one little glimmer. There was the Gandalf the White said that he was gonna go out for reinforcements and he was gonna be back on a specific day. He promised that he would show up at dawn on this day. And in the two towers, there's this section that reads like this. At last, Aragorn, the king, stood above the great gates, heedless of the darts of the enemy. What are you doing here, they answered. Why do you look out? Do you wish to see the greatness of our army? We are the fighting Urukai. I looked out to see the dawn, said Aragorn. What of the dawn, they jeered. We are the Urukai. We do not stop the fight for night or day, for fair weather or for storm. We come to kill by sun or moon. What of the dawn? None knows what the new day shall bring him, said Aragorn. Get you gone ere it turn to your evil. In the midst of this hopeless battle, 
where they're vastly outnumbered. Aragorn looks out to the dawn because he believes in the promise that Gandalf will come. And if you've seen the movie, it's one of the most glorious scenes where the dawn breaks and the white riders on the top of the hill and they roll down and destroy the orcs. (laughs) But being someone who trusts in the promises of God, even when they're not visible, even when they seem distant or unlikely, it, it breeds confidence in your heart, right? Aragorn is confident in Gandalf. He said he would come and he will come. And this is one reason why maybe God seems to be delaying. And we're get, we've come to this place and Zechariah is rejoicing over the fact that this is the generation that is seeing God finally move, finally act in history and keep his promises to his people. And Advent for us is also this season of waiting. Maybe it's a symbolic waiting. Maybe it's just, you know, fasting and and contemplating because Christmas is coming and, and working ourselves through that practice is a good discipline. But I would guess that most all of us feel the discontentment that comes from promises that have not yet been fulfilled. We live in a world where billionaires are made from the sale of weapons that kill children, where it's normal for the men and women that lead us to be driven primarily by their own selfishness, where division and hatred are growing seemingly day by day. And I know I feel like King David How long is it going to be this way? How long until you make things right? This is the time for us in this waiting to lean more deeply into Christ, not to pull away, to grow in confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus and his purposes for his people. God's promise to us today is that Christ not only came in the manger, but will come again and he will make all things new. He will set up his government and he will bring an end to pain and death and sorrow. Justice will flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Zechariah reminds us in his song that God keeps his promises and in allowing us to wait for those promises to be fulfilled, he offers us the opportunity to be shaped into people of deep faith. But then he rejoices that God saves us from our enemies. In verse 70, salvation, has from, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. Who are your enemies? Is it a boss, a co-worker, a kid at school? Maybe it's the Democrats or the Republicans. Maybe it's Russia or China or Iran. Zechariah is giving voice to a situation that his people have been in for centuries. Conquered by Babylon, ruled by Persia, abused by Greece, oppressed by Rome. Over and over and over again, kings and empires and nations have done terrible things to them. 
and they have suffered greatly at the hands of their enemies. And Zechariah says, finally, they're going to get what's coming to them. The Messiah, the King is coming. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jerusalem will be the capital of the earth and all the foreign kings will bow down to the people of God. And Zechariah imagines that the king will deal with their enemies so that they will be able to serve him freely in the future. They would have their relationship with God all to themselves with no one butting in to make them pay taxes to Caesar or no wicked kings coming in and defiling the temple. God, you're gonna show up and you're just gonna get rid of these guys. When I, was, um, when I was working for the, the Croc Center, there was uh, someone on staff who was my enemy. He, uh, he always got in my way. He had different goals. He, he ran a department, and he had very different goals for the facility than I did. And I would do something that I thought was great, and uh, I, I'd get approval from, you know, my, my leaders and, and he would come in, he'd swoop in and shut it down or mess it up. I just couldn't wait till they got rid of him. I wonder if, if we, we maybe all have that person in our lives or have had in the past. Just like, man, that guy, that woman, she, he, they, oh man, just wish they would be gone. Life would be so much easier if they were gone. It's easy to imagine a future in which our enemies have been destroyed, right? Maybe we pray for that. Break their teeth out, God. That's in the Bible. But then Jesus comes along and says crazy things like this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. Man, if only that wasn't in there. Zechariah probably didn't live long enough to hear this message from Jesus, but I wonder if it would have surprised him. That the very way that this prophecy that was going to come to pass was not through armed conflict and violence, but through self-sacrificial love. See, one of the many ways that Jesus turns life upside down for us is that he claims that enemies are not meant to be destroyed, but befriended and turned from opposition to family. And of course, Zechariah's prophecy comes true. Jesus delivers his people from their enemies, but not through warfare and violence, not by destroying them, but by loving them, by giving himself over to them allowing them to do their worst to him and through his self-sacrifice, opening up a way to actually save them too. This is his model for his people to follow. Zechariah maybe envisions a future where the enemies of God are strewn along the battlefield. But Jesus brings about a new community that invites the enemy to become the friend, that serves the enemy on behalf of the king. There's a pretty famous atheist in the last century named Bertrand Russell. And he said, the Christian principle, love your enemies is good. 
There is nothing to be said against it except that it is too difficult for most of us to practice sincerely. And I think Russell speaks that for a lot of us, even us who are Christians. Jesus, thanks for loving your enemies. That's great. Really awesome. That's just too hard for me, though. I can't do that. What if my enemies take advantage of me? What if their agenda wins in the culture? What if my love is perceived as weakness and they just run over me? I just can't afford that. But the first Christians didn't think that way. They took Jesus really seriously. There's, there's literally, literally hundreds of opportunities to share with you, but I, I picked three In the Didache, which is uh, an early Christian discipleship manual from about 100 AD, it says, bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you, quoting Jesus. For what is the benefit if we love those who love us? Do not even the Gentiles do this? But you, you love those who hate you and you will not have an enemy. That's an interesting way to think about that. If you just decide, I'm not gonna have any enemies, I'm gonna love everybody. There you go, problem solved. Athenagoras in 150 said, it is not lawful when Christians are struck not to offer themselves for more blows, nor when defamed not to bless. For it is not enough to be just, and justice is to return like for like, but it is incumbent upon us to be good and patient of evil. He takes Jesus seriously when Jesus says, turn the other cheek when your enemy strikes you, and says, it's, it's not lawful to do otherwise. As Christians, this is who we are because this is who our king is. Tertullian in in 180 says, how often you inflict gross cruelties on Christians, yet banded together as we are ever so ready to sacrifice our lives, what single case of revenge for injury are you able to point to? That's a pretty wild statement. Tertullian looks across the entire Roman Empire in the second century and says, find one time that Christians have ever sought revenge for being wronged. And this is a time when they'd been brutally murdered by gladiators and thrown to lions and executed and dipped in oil and lit on fire. And all kinds of horrible things have happened simply because these men and women claim the name of Christ. And they are so serious about the way of Jesus that they are not going to seek revenge. They are not going to attack their enemies. They are going to love them to the point of death. For hundreds of years, To be a Christian meant that the only weapons given to you by God were the fruit of the Spirit. Zechariah says that, that the Messiah is going to come to deliver his people from his enemies. And that's true. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been drafted into Christ's army, not to fight people, but to fight the powers and principalities who have brought them under captivity and not with the world's weapons, but with the word of God and the character of Christ. And when we, do, when we commit to doing this and walking in the way of Jesus, empowered by his spirit in us, over and over and over again, we will see that God delivers us from our enemies. And Zechariah finishes his song by celebrating the fact that God saves us from ourselves. Verse 76. You, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
Zechariah speaks to his baby boy and pronounces his role as the one that will prepare the way for the king. And we see later that John's message to his own people is going to be, turn away from your sins. Matthew 3, we read, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Zechariah keys into something really important here. And it's very, very clear that we're aware of this. We want to be people that claim the promises of God. We've been waiting so long, God. Will you not deliver us from our enemies? But all of that begins with our own hearts. We look out in the world, we see the darkness all around us, and we point our fingers at all the problems, and there are problems. But we are the problem. We are the ones in the darkness. We are the ones that need rescue. We need forgiveness. We need transformation. We need to confess that we have not walked faithfully in the ways of God. It's so much easier to point out the flaws in other people and ignore our own. Last week, I was sitting in my living room and my wife was making dinner in the kitchen and our youngest daughter was in her bedroom with the door shut playing. And we heard her just yell something. Something, I think it was like, when is dinner ready or something? It was hard, it's hard to hear. She's in the other room, through the doorway, through the walls. And my wife goes, what? I can't hear you. And this goes back and forth for a little while. They're just yelling at each other because they can't hear each other. And, and I just kind of, I was sitting there watching them. So I just kind of said, you know, if you just don't respond to her, she will recognize that uh, she isn't communicating with you and she will come out and talk like a normal person. Because, uh, you know, I'm the husband and I'm usually right and just trying to run my house well, right? <laughs> so later that night, um, after dinner, she was back in her bedroom with the door shut and we were both in the living room just reading a book or something. And, and I think what Joanna said was, can you go tell your daughter that it's time to get ready for bed? And I went, Nora, it's time to get ready for bed! <laughs> And she reminded me of my previous words. <laughs> I had to repent. <laughs> I'm so much better at pointing out other people's flaws than recognizing my own. Maybe I'm the only one. But Jesus comes to his people who are expecting a warrior king to lead an army against Rome, and he challenges them to be the ones that change. He shows them how to live a different kind of life that is 180 degrees away from what they thought they wanted. And most of them are offended by it. John is even offended by it. In Luke 7, John is in prison. Things aren't going John's way. He's been this prophet of God for a number of years and he got put in jail for it. John's disciples told him about all these things that Jesus was doing. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? I thought you were the guy, Jesus, that was gonna lead us out of all this mess, but I'm stuck in jail here. What's going on? 
When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people, and he replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. He challenges John. I'm doing something that's not what you expected. I'm keeping my promise. I'm saving you from your enemies, but I'm doing it in a different way. And it's starting with transforming these people to see the world the way God sees it. And John is expecting a very different gospel. He's expecting peace and prosperity right now. And this is the problem with preaching a gospel that says, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. Come to Jesus and all your relationships will be healed. Come to Jesus and all your temptations will go away. See, the gospel that John and Jesus preached says, come to Jesus and he will wreck you. He will bring you down to your most basic and recreate you into a new kind of person with new desires, new priorities, a new community, and a new purpose. Jesus' way of being the king was so radical. And he could say things like this. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, a weapon of execution, and follow me. But then he could also say, come to me, all of you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, in Jesus, both of those things are true. We experience this intense challenge to to give up who we thought we wanted to be and be transformed into someone new. But also we experience the comfort and the rest of being cared for and loved by the Son of God. Zechariah says that the king is coming to guide our feet into the way of peace in his song. To guide our feet into the way of peace. There's a path to walk. Our rescue is a process. It's an invitation. It's a gift freely given to us. Jesus says, follow me. Notice he never like rounds people up for his posse. He's just like walking around going, hey, you want to come? You can come. If you don't want to come, that's fine. Don't come. That's the offer. Follow me. But then it's a journey. It's a moment by moment, day by day, circumstance by circumstance, progression to becoming free not from the enemies out there, but from the enemy in here. I talked about musicals last week. In in a musical, you, you use words to communicate until your emotions can't handle it anymore, and then you break out into song. And this is what Zechariah is doing. He's broken out into song because he is so overwhelmed by the goodness of God and the coming of his promises He's thrilled to see that his king is coming to rescue his people. But many of the Jewish people will not be so thrilled when Jesus finally starts this work. And I just wonder if we as a people, as a church in Coeur d'Alene, as Christians throughout this nation, are we excited about the work of Jesus to rescue us? 
if that rescue means humility and self-sacrifice and pursuing our enemies in order to make them our friends. Because that small group of people in the first century, that, that little remnant, that 120 that Jesus gathered, they caught that vision. And by God's powerful spirit inside them, they turned the world upside down. And men and women throughout the history of the church have reapplied that vision to their situations and turned their worlds upside down again and again and again. Because everywhere the gospel goes, the kingdom of Jesus spreads. And as we, as we close this morning, I'm, I'm getting a little concerned that we are at a place in the history of our nation that could go really badly in the pretty near future. I try to stay out of a lot of the kind of current events world because it's pretty toxic, I think. But it just seems more and more that we are a people that are incredibly broken and incredibly divided and talking past each other and unable to communicate unable to see the humanity in our opponents on whatever issue or or scale you want to put that on. Now, our country is in need of saving. And the church of Jesus Christ, we are the only people that are equipped to do that. We are the only people that have words of life that could turn that around. And while we might be hoping, like Zechariah, that that the king is going to come and crush our enemies, that's not the way Jesus works. We cannot be people in this time in history that conquer with insults or division or lawsuits or weapons. The only way the church will be successful in its mission in our time is by following the way of Jesus. And that all of the things that we see out there that concern us and cause us anxiety and make us afraid, all of those things will change only when Jesus transforms our hearts through repentance and humility and sacrifice and love. And I think we as a church, not just this group of people, definitely us, but as a church in this country are really at a crossroads to say, are we going to take Jesus seriously? And walk in his ways like generations have before us or not. Zechariah is excited about the coming of the king. We can be excited about the coming of the king again. But as long as he waits, he's waiting for a reason. He's doing something in us. He's pulling out the gross that still lives in us and purifying it. He's he's holding back because there are millions of people that don't yet know him that he wants in his kingdom. And he will come back and make everything right but he's also given us the opportunity to be at work in the world the way he is at work in the world. 
if we are willing to give ourselves over to the way he does things and to live lives that are reflective of who he is. Let's do some Q&R. Two weeks in a row, we don't have any? Oh, it's just my phone. Oh, look at that. Look at all those questions. What's that say? Where did the family name, whoa. Where did the family name come from? Cain and Abel weren't family names. There is no Adam, the 139th. Um, well, this isn't really a Bible question. I think this is more of an English history question or European history question, but my understanding is that it comes from the fact that when people started moving from town to town in the Industrial Revolution, and they all had the same name, they had to differentiate them between each other. You couldn't have like eight Johns working at your factory. So they gave them the name of their father before them. I don't know. <laughs> it's not prayer a call to relationship in lieu of predominantly a request line. Yeah. Yeah, prayer, I mean, we just got done talking about... Um, Prayer is a spiritual discipline, and prayer works in a lot of different ways. The Lord's Prayer, the way that Jesus taught us to pray, is an opportunity to ask things of the Lord. Everything in the Lord's Prayer is a petition of some kind, but those petitions are meant to draw us into relationship, into, into a, a, a kind of relationship with God in which we are always praying. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, and I think we're called to do that seriously, and we should cultivate an inner life that is continually connected to God. And I think when we limit prayer to just, here's what I want, please do it for me. Um, that's, it's not that God doesn't care what we want or what we think we want or what we actually need. Sometimes that's a really good way to get into a heartfelt relationship with the Lord. But that shouldn't be the extent of our prayer life. In light of turning the other cheek and loving our enemies, what is a Christian's place in war and global conflict? <laughs> Okay, so uh, here's my unpopular opinion. I don't think we have a place. Um, this is not a, this is not a, if, any, if you've taken the membership class and you know how you structure things, die for, divide for, uh, debate for, decide for, different issues. I don't think this is a die for, I don't think this is a divide for issue. I'm probably in the minority in this church, um, but uh, Tertullian, again, uh, I don't have the quote, but he said when, uh, Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. He disarmed every soldier. Um, I just think we don't have, we have not been given the tool of war in order to win souls. We've been given the tool of the gospel. And that's a big can of worms that we don't have time for, but I'd love to talk with you more about that. Although Israel is not a Christian country, they're God's chosen people. Are you able to put into context the current conflict with Hamas? <laughs> no, it's acceptable. <laughs> Thank you for that out. Um, I will say this about the current conflict with Hamas. Hamas is wicked and evil and should be destroyed. That is the right that Israel has uh, as a sovereign nation. And I set that aside of, of what, you know, I would say a Christian response is. Um, but I would also say that God is never happy when people are killed, especially innocent children. And I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, 
whose numbers are right, one is bad enough. And that we should grieve the loss of life in that conflict. And while um, there is definitely a writer side, um, there's a lot of pain and suffering that grieves the heart of God there. Well, thanks. <laughs> Praise God. We're going to take communion. <laughs> Jesus comes to save us from our enemies and from ourselves by his death on the cross. He substitutes his perfect life for our sinful life. He allows himself to be defeated by death, our greatest enemy, but death doesn't have the power to hold him. And he breaks it so that it has no hold on us ultimately any longer. We are freed from its grasp and we are given new life in him. This is one of the many things we celebrate at the communion table. And so I would invite you as the band comes up and plays to come down to the front and get the bread and the cup. There's wine and juice for the dictates of your conscience. Take it back to your table or your your seat. You can make a little table with your Bible if you want to, I guess. Um, And give some thought to what Jesus has done for you. How Jesus has come to save you from your enemies but how that might look a little bit different than you thought. Think about how Jesus has come to save you from yourself, from the sin and death that lives in you. Um, And just practice cultivating some gratitude this morning for that. Because I think we, we often just kind of, especially if you've been in the church for a long time, that's just a theological idea that you put a pin in and go like, yeah, 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 yeah. But like that's the center point of our, our entire life what Jesus has done on the cross for you. And so just take a few minutes on your own um, to just contemplate his goodness, his faithfulness, how he keeps his promises and how he has saved you from sin and death. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you can become one by trusting in Christ, by saying, yeah, I, I wanna be transformed. I recognize that I am the problem. I need to be saved by the King. And you can ask him to save you. You can ask him to forgive you for your sins You can tell him, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be made like you. And then you can come down and take communion too. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.